We, uh, we're in a new series. Uh, today will be the second installment, the second message in a five-part series that we're calling The Church On Point and On Purpose. We began this series last week by asking you a question. I ask you, have you ever been part of an organization, but the experience grew sour because there was low, no larger mission, motivation, or purpose behind it beyond its own self-preservation? Don't you think that you want to be involved in something where it's just not fuzzy what it's about? Like it's just clear why we're here because there's a strength if we know where we're going and we pull our weight and we align ourselves in, in love and in unity. And that's the big idea behind this series. And last week, we looked at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. I still want to call your attention to it. But Galatians 5, 6 talks about a religious a ritual from the Jewish culture. It says, hey, it's not about being circumcised or uncircumcised. The only thing that counts is faith expressed in love. And we looked at what that means. We looked at the part A of that. We had a little history lesson. We took you back to the Council of Jerusalem that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15. And I told you it's one of the most defining marks of the early church. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. He had a plan to change the world, and his plan was to be with some, to lead a small group, a revolutionary small group that would be with him, that would learn from him, and then go lead others that would also have a, a be with plan, that we would live in community, but this community wouldn't fuss and fight, this community wouldn't bite and devour one another, as it says in Galatians 5, 14, but that we would be unified, that we would love each other, and we wouldn't be fuzzy about this mission. We would know why we're here. And the early church, uh, it, it just blew up. Y'all know that, right? I mean, some people say, well, it's not about the numbers, not about the numbers. I say that often. I say that at Fonder Church, we don't want to be about the numbers. We want to, we want to nourish people. We want uh, health before we want to be large. And I think that's really important. But several times, recorded for us in the book of Acts, it says there were 3,000 saved, 5,000 gathered here, et cetera, et cetera. The writers, Luke, the physician of Acts, the writer there has given us this idea that, man, this thing was a powder keg. It blew up. It spilled over. And it wasn't just contained. This Jewish Messiah and his revolutionary movement of love wasn't just isolated to the Jewish region of J Jerusalem. In fact, Paul and Barnabas and other leaders, Peter and James, they went out as the original early apostles and they shared and everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people were coming to faith in Jesus and many of them were Gentiles. And when the Gentiles got together, the Jews were, a lot of the Gentiles were in Antioch and other regions and the Jews were in Jerusalem. Uh, in that environment and they began to think what about these people if they're going to convert to a Jewish Messiah then they ought to be Jewish themselves and so what about the law of Moses what about the ceremonial cleansings and the Sabbath and all these things and there was a council in Acts 15 Peter spoke he uh, stepped up as a skilled orator and gave an, a passionate talk James went after him, and he said in Acts 15, hey, let's just not make it difficult for people to get in. Bam! Just want to let that drop on you, Fondren Church in 2015. Let's just not make it difficult for people to get in. Because all those layers and trappings and facades and external things are just that. It really doesn't matter because what really matters, really only one thing counts. And we said, I share with you a prayer that I'm praying for my life and for our church that we would be hedgehogs. I'm stealing that from Jim Collins in the book Good to Great. Hedgehogs, just, they just do a couple of things really well and they ignore everything else. But in that, there's a power if we as a church could become like hedgehogs with our mission. What would it look like? 
if our church focused on growth. You know, you know Jesus wants to grow you. Somewhat cliche, but I think he's got this vision that when you leave here today, you'd be a little bit different. Maybe moderately different. For some of you, we're hoping radically different, right? You're probably sitting next to someone. Just look at them, give them that look like we're hoping you'll be radically different at today. Just God come down from heaven, right, and change this person next to you, right? We, we want to be different. We, we want to grow. We ought to, the mission of the church is clear. Go make disciples. Well, what are disciples? People that grow. Well, what do we grow? Do we grow our hair? Do we grow our beard, our nails? What are we, what are we growing around here? Jesus, we said last week, really cares that people's faith grows. It's what he talks so much about. I challenge you to look at the scripture as I have recently and realized that Jesus never chided someone for their lack of knowledge. He never said, gosh, you guys just don't, you hadn't studied enough. You don't know enough. But he did, said, did say, oh, you, ye, we'll go King James, it just sounds better, right? Oh, ye of little faith. Jesus, conversely, never praise someone because they knew a lot he never gathered guys men and women around him and said gosh y'all you're you just know so much this is so cool what you know I mean you guys are cerebral and it's just beautiful what you know but he did say several times to different people men and women in need who who put down something to follow him he said I'm amazed at your faith he really wants our faith to grow. I ask you as we began a new season. Some people are coming back to school and, ugh, and back to church. Yay. And we're getting into a rhythm, right? And it's not like New Year's resolutions, but we're asking, hey, what am I, I going to do this fall? And last week I said, what if you didn't ask the question, what am I going to do this fall? But you ask, what am I going to do by faith this fall? And we're called in this world to live not by sight, but by faith. How do you know if you live by sight. You think you have to know everything first before you move forward. You think every problem has to be solved before you push ahead. You think every question has to be answered. Every puzzle has to be complete and, look, and you can look and see everything in its panoramic glory. But faith, Jesus teaches us, is a risk. It's a thrill. It's an adventure. It is a life worth living. The only thing that counts is faith as it's expressed in Love. So you let me talk about faith last week. Let me talk today about love. Let's get good, okay? Let's just go right to this passage in the Bible. Here it is. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful your eyes behind your veil, they're doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. This is in the Bible. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin not one of them is alone I can't feel my face when I'm with you but I I love it your lips are like a scarlet ribbon your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate your neck is like the tower of David let me just stop before it starts getting weird right here we have what we have this we have someone falling in love I was thinking last night about our expression falling in love I think we say that because there's this, this weightlessness as we fall, as we experience that. There's this electrical current, this energy field, this, this draw, this magnet, this, this pull, this attraction between the two. He goes on for real to say this. This is Song of Solomon chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Here is verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. What does that say about that man? He's not married, right? 
What you, first date? First date? Just nod with me. First date, yeah? Honestly, probably not. Let me do some strong exegetical work here. Honestly, he knows her. He knows her very well. But he's saying, yeah, you got flaws. Guys, you, you need to learn, by the way, fellas. I'm just saying, you need, you need to learn. He's saying, you, you've got flaws, but all this good, that's what I'm looking at, right? He's, he's in love. He's intoxicated by love. There's another story in the Bible where a man named Jacob has it for Rachel, a young lady. And he goes to Rachel's father, and Rachel's father says, okay, remember, different culture. And Rachel's father says to him, you can have her if you work for me for seven years. Jacob does. Look what the scripture says. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Guys only. Look at me. You ever felt that way? You ever felt that way? Fellas, raise your hand, please. <laughs> for crying out loud. Is this, this is obviously the remedial group here, right? <laughs> Love. Here's what some of us uh, need to know, some of us head in the sands uh, church folks, that the Bible actually celebrates love that's this way, that's intoxicating. It celebrates it. But I will say that there, nowhere in Scripture, to my knowledge, does it ever command us to fall in love. But it does command us to grow in love. Remember Paul in some of the greatest poetry of our day, of any day, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but if I, I don't have love, then I'm a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have faith in the gift of prophetic words to the point where I can move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have, more than Bill and Melinda Gates, to, 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 get, to give away as just acts of altruism and love, if I give everything I have, and if I even deliver my very own body to be burned at the stake, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. How would we say that maybe in our day, if I could tweet like Justin Bieber and had more friends on Facebook than Pope Francis, if I got a BA from Yale and an MBA uh, from Harvard, if I invented Snapchat and Instagram and WhatsApp and Uber, if I had great thick flowing hair and chiseled abs and pearly white teeth and no body fat, if I could end the drought and solve the debt crisis and cool the polar ice caps, if I drove a Hummer that ran on compost and I, I didn't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I would ask you, what is your goal? Think about you, especially if you're a leader here. What is, what is your goal? For, but for all of you, what, what is your goal? I would think that if your goal is to be physically fit, you would join a gym. If your goal is financial security, a long-term program to get there, I bet you would check out an investor for some help. If your goal is a successful, ongoing career, I bet you would find a mentor or take a class. 
And if you wanted to grow in love, let me ask you, where would you go? Where would you go? The answer is Fondren Church, right? You guys are letting me down so many ways today. No, 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 for real. Where would you go? Wouldn't you like to be involved in a movement, in change, where more of us in this room and more folks out there would think church when they would think of a place to go where they could learn about love. Paul told this to Timothy and all those at a new church plant. He said, for the goal of our instruction is love. Look at it. It's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's, that's the goal. When we teach, when we preach, when you circle up and get in a small group, when you join some type of equipping class, when you get together to learn something about missions, about the gospel, about community, about theology, the goal of instruction is it's love. Pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere, sincere faith. Not long ago, I was at a restaurant with a friend. Some of you go out to eat with me sometimes. My family, I embarrass them often. When I go into a restaurant, we've got to wait for a table. They'll say, what's your name? And I'd say, Chili Palmer. That's just my restaurant name. Um, anybody remember the movie Get, Get Shorty with John Travolta and Danny DeVito? Chili Palmer. Well, I'm Chili Palmer at restaurants. And the other day, uh, we were out, and we had a server. And I ordered, it was appetizer time, and I ordered a salad. And the server said, Brilliant. And the person who was with me ordered soup, and he said, perfect. And it came time for the entree. I ordered mine, excellent selection. He ordered his, wonderful choice. We ordered beverages and dessert and stuff, great, awesome choice. And later, I asked him toward the end of our, our time, again, in character as Chili Palmer, I said, I said do, you ever, do you ever say anything different? I mean, you know, would you ever say, that's stupid? Now, we know Donald Trump would, right? Stupid, you moron, right? Would you ever say that? And I learned that in the back there in the kitchen, there's a list. And one of the conditions for employment is that you say one of these nine statements or words of affirmation, right? It's, it's manipulative, isn't it? It's part of a, the training program. They're taught to say these things. That's not a, out of an overflow of their hearts. That's not a sincere, hey, good call. They're, they're instructed to do that. It's a, it's a condition of their employment. We're always a little disappointed, aren't we, when we find out somebody's doing something because they have to. It's a, it, it's a relationship killer at times, isn't it? It's one of the things you, you hear me joke about uh, quite a bit. I'm a professional Christian. I'm, I'm paid to be good. You guys are good for nothing. But there is this sense, right, that the church is only going to be healthy if there's a few of me and a whole lot of you. A whole lot of people that are doing good and loving. The, the goal of our instruction, what is love? Pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. It, it really is getting a hold of you. It's making a difference in your life.
Not long ago, I heard that someone say that a, the church is a jerk factory. That's awfully mean, isn't it? But reality is, I can be a jerk. You can be a jerk. Now, I think, honestly, let me clarify. I think the church ought to uh, attract jerks, but not produce them. You with me? We ought to attract jerks, but, but not produce them. You brought your jerkness with you today, as did I. And the right trigger, right, the right provocation, and there comes my jerk. And there I am, right, that dark side of me. But is that, is that what we're known for? Are we insincere? Are we frauds? Are, are we jerks? Dallas Willard is among my favorite writers. I'd put him in the top three. Here's something that he said. It is rare to find a church that is practically oriented around Jesus' instruction, love one another as I have loved you. It's somewhat anecdotal. I think it's a great quote. I wouldn't have put it up if I thought otherwise. But I would say to me, to you, I want to be rare. I, I want to be rare. My, my life, our church will never be about perfection, but are we in going in that right direction? Where we're practically orienting the life and the body, the mission of our church around the command to love one another, just as Jesus commanded, just as he lived. We saw it for a second ago, but Paul said, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 8, 1, he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds We are built up to the extent that we speak the truth to each other in love. Will we be that kind of community? What is your goal? What's the goal of our church? The goal of instruction is love. Is that true for us? Are we on the jerk path? Are we on the Jesus path? Are we calling people to puff themselves up or to build others up the most probably the strongest and most physically fit person in the bible as i understand it is samson but his life was a train wreck there was a story of a rich man that jesus told he talked about and this man in a parable that jesus taught us this rich man had his best year of his life with income he made a lot of money and what did he do he built bigger barns he tore down the old ones and built bigger barns to store his stuff and to show some bling and flash to his neighbors and Jesus said that he died alone in fact he died a fool is your goal to be fit strong rich is it to be successful the most successful Man or woman in Jesus' time was Herod. Herod was a monster. The smartest person probably in all the Bible, humanly speaking, was Solomon. And he had a thousand wives. Not exactly Phi Beta Kappa move there, right? What's, what's the goal of your life and mine? What are we chasing? It doesn't end well if the goal is strong, rich, smart, successful and just as a church that shouldn't be our goal to be strong rich smart or successful 
And if we have, if we flex our strength at all, it ought to be to help the weak. And if wealth and abundance comes our way, it ought to be broken and spilled out and poured over and given away. And if we grow smart, we better be careful because the scripture says we're going to get all puffed up like the Michelin man. And the goal is to be built up. Don't you want to be a part of a community where we really build each other up? Ephesians chapter 3, I promise you. We're on third base now, heading toward home. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, page 977. Nothing like having a Bible in front of you. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, there's that word, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of of God. Leave that up for a few minutes if you would. A couple of words to consider. The first is the word rooted. This is one example. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 3 as he does here in Ephesians 3. He takes an example from agriculture and one from architecture. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says there was a potential for, for the church at Corinth to misunderstand some things about the gospel, about leadership, about what was really causing the church to flourish. And Paul said, hey, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. Straight from agriculture. And then he went on to say, make sure as you're building a ministry, as you're building a church, as you're building a soul, a life, a character, a marriage, a single life, a family, make sure that your building materials are it's the stuff that's going to last. Gold, silver, costly stones, not wood, hay, mud, and stubble. Agriculture and architecture. We, we have the same thing as I've studied it this week. We have the same thing here. To be rooted. Think of a tree. Now we've had how many days? Jason Matisse told me yesterday. How many days straight without rain? 34. Just moan when, when you say it, right? 34 days. And we've got some broken sprinklers at my house and the church. We need to have a work day at our house, don't we? A Fondren Church work day at the pastor's house. But it's just painful to see some things dying, right? But whatever is rooted down deeper can make it past 34 days of a drought. And we've got, we've got some of those in our yard and in our neighborhood. But we've got one tree that's not flourishing. And you, everybody knows that, but when a tree flourishes, it grows tall and strong. The trunk grows thick. The branches bloom out. Green is the color of the season. It grows seeds, saps, and deep roots. But when it when a tree is suffering, no life, it's skeletal. It's severed from depth of roots. No color, no leaves, no blooming, no blossoming, no life. And Paul's saying that he wants your life and mine to be rooted and to be, to be grounded. Here, he's probably using a little bit of an architectural image. The idea of is, is a building and, and its pilings just going down deep into the bedrock beneath, getting down there. Honestly, as a, as a church, we're not doing so well. A church in general, the American church, the, the church that we hear a lot about. 
increasingly in a negative light. And a burden that God has given me is that a lot of us as leaders, we're not grounded. We're not rooted. We're, we're lacking depth. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry permanently each month in America. 80% of pastors and 85% of their spouses feel discouraged in their roles. 70% of pastors do not have a close friend, confidant, or mentor. Over 50% of pastors are so discouraged they would leave the ministry if they could but have no other way of making a living. Over 50% of pastors' wives feel that their husband, husband entering ministry was the most destructive thing to ever happen to their families. 71% of pastors stated they were burned out and they battled depression beyond fatigue on a weekly and even daily basis. One out of every 10 ministers will actually retire as a minister. One writer's commentary in this book called Replenish, he says, we've neglected the fact that a pastor's greatest leadership tool is a healthy soul. Our concentration on skill and technique and strategy has resulted in de-emphasizing the interior life. The outcome, outcome is an increasing number of men and women leading our churches who are emotionally empty and spiritually dry. Quaker author Parker Palmer said, A leader is a person who must take special responsibility for what's going on inside of himself or herself, lest the act of leadership create more harm than good. Are we grounded? Are we rooted? What are we doing as a church? What are we, what are we going after? Are, 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 is it the same thing of the world? Are we trying to be strong, smart, rich, and successful? Or do we realize that what counts is faith as it expresses itself in love? This summer, like a lightning bolt on a desert night, I believe God was speaking to me to get back to something that's really important that I can neglect about every other week. And, and, and starting a church a few years ago, it was like every week. I can't do that anymore. And some of you, you know what I'm talking about. You might even feel the effects more than I do at times. I'm sure some of you do. But God was speaking to me about this idea of really honoring a Sabbath rest, that weekly and I would have a 24-hour period where I would do just that. I would rest. I would cease from work. I would delight in his gifts and enjoy the life that he is abundantly giving me and take in the blessings in a slow, savoring, pondering, deep, rooted, grounded, meditative way. How shallow do we want to be? How rooted, how grounded, how established. Paul says, what, what does it say in Ephesians 3? It's a prayer, and he says that you would be rooted, grounded, that is firmly established in love. 1 John 3 tells us what a great love the Father has for us, a love that he lavished on us as children of God. Romans 5 says that it's a love that he's spread abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. It really is an interior work, a, a, a mystery, but a work that God can do in us. He goes on to say, this, this theologian, Paul, he goes on to say in Romans chapter 8 that this love is so great 
that there's therefore no more condemnation. If you're feeling condemned, you're bringing it on yourself. It's voices inside your head or it's an enemy attack. But there's therefore no more condemnation. In fact, God's love for you and for me, it is so great that therefore there is therefore no separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul says neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor this present life nor the life to come nor height nor depth there's nothing in this created world that can separate us from the love of Christ but why do we why do you have such difficulty knowing that you're loved you see the writers of scripture They give us the most extravagant, elaborate images of God's love for you and I. It's the love of a father, the love-sick love of a father for a homesick, runaway son. It's the love of a mother who cannot ever forget her child. It's, It's the love of a friend who willingly lays down his life for another friend. It's the love, the passionate love of a groom for his bride. But so much separates us from the love of God. Our fear does. Your fear does. That jumbled closet of insecurities, the issues from your family of origin, the wounds from past relationships, the emotional scars, the addictions, the struggles, the unhealthy patterns of behavior and reacting the defense mechanisms, the walls that we put up. These things in our heads and our hearts do great damage in blocking God's love to his people. If we're going to be a people of faith, it means we're going to have to believe him. John 3.16, everybody knows it, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. God's love and belief. And sometimes we think of belief, sometimes we think of Jesus, sort of like a JFK figure, an historical figure who lived many years before JFK. He lived a pretty cool life, and unfortunately he died an untimely death, and we believe that he existed as a historical figure. But the faith that Paul is praying that would spring up in our hearts is a faith that says, God, I believe you are who you say you are, and you will do what you say you will do. To know, to believe that he loves us. To be a church that moves moves away from spiritual dryness and unhealthiness and emotional sickness, spiritual blockage, and we move toward A God that we believe in. A God whom we take at his word. And while we take him at his word, we believe that he loves us. I want to close this message by reading something pretty cool. When my wife Allison was 28 weeks pregnant with our first child, she called me to let me know that her feet were swollen. Water retention is not uncommon in an uncommon occurrence in pregnancy. But just to be safe, she stopped at a drugstore to check her blood pressure. Sure enough, the numbers were sky high. Allison called our doctor, and he invited her to come in for a quick checkup. I met her at the hospital thinking it would be a routine visit. 
I could tell from the look on the doctor's face that something wasn't right. After running a few tests, he informed us that Allison would need to be on bed rest for the duration of her pregnancy. That curveball hit us from left field. Twelve weeks is a long time to be in bed, and we were not expecting that news. After more tests that day, we learned Allison would need to stay in the hospital for, be- for her bed rest. That was an even bigger blow, and less than an hour later, the doctor sat down on the edge of Allison's bed, and I could see the sadness in his body language. I hate to tell you this, but it looks like you're going to deliver your baby within the night. As those words rolled out of his mouth, a team of nurses came in the room and started hooking my wife up to all kinds of machines. It happened so fast. And the tears came just as quickly for us. My prayers went from very generic prayers of God, help us deal with this, to very desperate and lonely cries of God, I beg you, please work a miracle on behalf of my wife and little girl. I wasn't questioning God. I wasn't asking why me, why my wife, why my firstborn child. I've lived in this fragile and fallen world long enough to know this truth. God is good even when life isn't good to me. By morning, Allison's physical condition had worsened and doctors feared we would lose her if we didn't deliver the life inside of her. I was tired of being tired. I was scared and worried, but strangely, I was excited too. I wasn't going to meet my, I was going to meet my daughter. I was going to be a dad. That doesn't happen every day. Fifteen minutes later, Ava Joy was born all two pounds of her three months early. At least 10 doctors discussed with Allison and me all the potential complications that Ava could face in life, hearing loss, blindness, a litany of other developmental challenges. Honestly, the list was longer than I could have imagined, but at the time, the list didn't matter to me. I was a dad. And dads don't care what their children can or can't do. We love them. And the reason I loved Ava was because she was mine. I helped make her. Part of me was in her. In the middle of the night when no one else was around, I stared into the little glass tube where my little girl was fighting for her life, and it hit me. God has heard all the reports on me. And in spite of how grave they are, in spite of my spiritual prematurity, he loves me because in the purest, truest sense of the word, God is a dad. And part of him is in me, and part of him him is in you. We are his children, and he loves us as we are. I stood over Ava's incubator and wondered what was best for her, whatever the cost, whatever the procedure. I pleaded with the doctors to do what they could to help her live. When I read the Bible, it's like a love letter from lovesick dad to his homesick children. And in it, he says, whatever the cost, whatever the procedure, even if it means giving my life for yours, I will do it. I will pay it. I will go through it for so you can live. We cannot ever grow tired of the gospel message that he loves us. And to the extent that we experience that love, to the extent that that love flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, to that extent, can we have a viable expression to the world around us? And will we be able to love others? If I want to be that kind of church, don't you? I want to be the kind of church that loves others. I sat down this week with a, with a man. I said, Robert, I don't know if you know this, he pushed back some of his dignity when he said it. And he said, Robert, I don't know if you know this, but Fondren Church paid our rent last month. You know what? I didn't know that. Because we have a team of men and women who handle our benevolence for us. And to the extent that we're a generous church is to the extent that we can come around people like that. A single mom in our church has a husband in prison, and he'll be there probably for the rest of his life. But a young attorney is stepping up to make sure this mom can be free of that, to move forward, to love and care for her family. A young man in our church is fighting a real life and death 
battle with cancer. And I learned last week that he said his best friend in town is a young man on our church and on our staff team. I'm so proud of that. Love that we experience and love that we give away. Pray with me. God, just as we fight ongoing internal battles of having flimsy goals that really are no different than the world around us, to be smart, successful, rich, strong. Even as a church, we're tempted. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be about attendance, budgets, buildings, cash, programs, any sort of dog and pony show. That you would move us away from being an event to being a community. In these weeks ahead, as we look at our values here of enjoyment of the gospel, of being intentional about community and being prayerful in our mission, I pray you would truly stir our affections light a fire under us. And God, I, I love what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that the, we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would comprehend with all the saints. And you've called us to be a truth-telling, love-giving community. With all the saints. And let us not mistake that for being shiny, always happy, perfect people. We're broken and we're tattered and we're flawed. We fail each other constantly, but we are saints because you love us and you called us out of darkness and into light and to love each other, to experience your love. Lord, grow us in that. For faith that is wavering, for doubt that is overcoming, for hatred and discord and fear that's pushing love out. Lord, speak life and love into us and may it give life. For single people that are battling loneliness and for marriages that are in some level of decay and death. For sin that's getting in the way of relationships and friendships. For parents and children who are hurting and leaving love unfelt and unexpressed. To this community that's looking at us and maybe looking at our jerk factor. Lord, I pray more and more we be known as a place that loves. As you're teaching me, teach us to slow and to savor and to experience to comprehend what is a wonderful mystery but what can be so real in our lives that to know your great, enduring, inexplicable love for your children. Oh, that the goal of today's instruction would be love, pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith in Jesus, in you we pray. Amen. Church, would you stand? We want to have an opportunity today to pray for you, for any of you who would uh, need prayer, who would...
who would want prayer. I think I told some of you at the beginning of the summer, I sat in my truck with a friend out back here in the parking lot. He said, Robert, you know, I'm not one of those guys that goes down front for prayer, but I need, I need your prayers, my brother. Push away any pride today. There's going to be a few of us down front. We'd love to pray for you, for this place to be certainly a prayer of worship and singing as Jay and the team leads us, but an opportunity for us to pray for you and anything happening in your life where you're at a point of need for his mercy, his grace.